0: It started out as not being a figure-ground relation. I was just going to do sort of that pixelation in the center all the way through. I was going to just build really dense movement of color. And then once I filled up that center area, I kind of liked it as an object. So I just threw a fairly simplistic background on it, and then I had sort of this weird idea of putting a loading symbol at the bottom right of the uh, the blue one there. So sometimes they'll change. Sometimes I think I know what the painting's going ha- uh, to be, and then halfway through it, it does change. So that's, it's good to still have a little bit of that, that looseness.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 218th episode, Eric Ocrasa joined me to talk a bit about his paintings, and I guess more aptly I was able to join him in his studio in Naperville, Illinois. We talked in depth about his colorful hard-edge abstractions, and we talked a bit about his background and history as well as different processes, and he uses a lot of digital tools, a number of programs, as well as a vinyl cutter and regular old painter's tape. We talked a bit about his editing and all sorts of great stuff, so please stay tuned for that interview coming up. If you're checking out Studio Break for the very first time, I want to encourage you to visit studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive of artists up there, and each of our posts have these lengthy interviews where we discuss process and history and all sorts of great stuff with the artists. And we also have links to their websites, images of their work and all sorts of archived episodes that are available, so be sure and peruse. You'll also see there's an iTunes hyperlink, so you can hit that and subscribe to the podcast and see we've got a big catalog there, so please check it out. You can, of course, follow us and check us out on social media, so be sure and like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And with those announcements out of the way, here is the interview with Eric Crassa. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Eric Crassa.
0: That's right. Thank you. Awesome.
1: Yeah, again, it's kind of interesting because I'm actually in your studio, so it's kind of a nice change of pace. We are associates. We both teach at College DuPage, which we met. I saw your work years ago at a, at a show and, you know, obviously became a little bit interested and obviously there and then you know finally doing this so it's nice to to be doing it and visiting visiting your space so
0: yeah great uh, great to have you here yeah I've got a couple paintings to look at but yeah I mean yeah it's great actually have a studio visit at your own spot rather than sort of at a show or something like that
1: sure sure and obviously too it's nice to be able to you know see that you have a dozen painting knives and I've got one that I just lost somewhere (laughs) <laughs> yeah. That I had to sure. replace And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is how somebody organizes this So anyways, I'm sure there'll be plenty of superfluous, uh, silly things to talk about Sure, yeah, definitely But to start from a, a good area, I guess um, Where are you originally from? You're not around here, so maybe fill us in a little bit So
0: uh, both my parents were actually in the Army So we moved around a lot as a kid The majority of my childhood was in Austin, Texas, though From about middle school on Went to college at Texas State, which is San Marcos, just south of Austin and then uh, graduate school at University of Houston, where I actually met my my wife moved me up here.
1: Very cool. And, you know, as I was just alluding to, you've got all sorts of music gear as well. Sure. I somehow imagine in Austin there was a, maybe a little bit of an inkling, too, to be a musician at some point. Was that something that was important growing
0: up, too? Yeah, definitely. Maybe not as much as growing up. Um, I actually got sort of into music late high school, early college. But, yeah, definitely. Austin is a very accepting city of live music i think it's actually known as the live music capital of the world Mm -hmm. which might be a little ostentatious but it's good (laughs) i think that it's a very accepting place and um, yeah a lot of people to jam with a lot of very just kind of laid-back people that you can kind of just fill in with and i'm mostly a drummer so okay it's uh it's easier for me to just kind of fill in i like playing you know i was on a a country band i was in a metal band like just playing standard rock so yeah i just like being sort of the supporting role as far as uh music usually.
1: So is art like always something on the horizon in terms of growing up and in terms of making stuff?
0: Yeah, definitely. I can remember from a very young age being able to look at something and render it fairly accurately. I didn't really need much training as far as the hand-eye coordination that comes with that. mean, I did all sorts of fantasy drawings, sort of like Lord of the Rings stuff and sort of demons and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. It kind of Waxed and waned as far as uh, my interest as far as art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, kind of like late high school, early college, once again, kind of the revitalization of music and art kind of came kind of simultaneously.
1: No other hobbies? Athletics? or Yeah, some... I, did
0: a, I did a lot of athletics as a kid. Um, soccer, lacrosse, cross country. And I'm actually a, uh, a boxing coach as well right now. So. Oh, geez. Yeah. I didn't
1: realize there are all these... Facets. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, I guess, the cool thing about somebody that studies art or, you know, we're, since we're both teachers, I mean, this is literally the kind of thing that you know, maybe you're talking about during classes is all these other interests that people have and sure. you know, it's interesting as artists is how people kinda of combine all those things. So I mean again, I see all sorts of recording gear too, aside from just the music gear. So I'm imagining there's things that are, you know, peripheral to your painting as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's more rewarding when I have other people to kinda of play with. Sure. Um, as a drummer, sometimes I'll just the good thing I actually have an electronic kit. I can just put headphones on and Two in the morning when I can't sleep, I can come down and, and bang the drums and not wake the wife up. Right on. With an acoustic kit, that would be impossible. Uh, my neighbors my neighbors would be calling. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so there's there's certain parameters that I have to sort of fit around now, but it's still, a, it's still a good release for sure. Yeah.
1: Well, and so in terms of, you know, your art studies, you know, you kind of alluded to having, you know, some ability to kind of like work through representational and things like that, where in terms of like thinking about it relative to like a high school experience, I mean... Were you kind of set on, like, I want to study fine art, or I want to be a graphic designer person, and make all the packaging for stuff, you
0: know? <laughs> right. Um, well, honestly, I had, late in high school, I sort of had this, I don't know what you call it, like early life crisis, I don't know uh-huh. what you call it. My mom and dad, as I said, were both in the Army. Mm-hmm. My sister is in the Army, my brother was in the Air Force, I have a couple uncles that were in the Army, both grandpas were in the Army. So it's kind of like a family career. So I was... Kind of expected to sort of go that direction, and I actually had a uh, a full ride. I had a ROTC scholarship at Texas State that uh, that after one year I actually turned down because after that one year you kind of had to sign the dotted line and commit the next five years of your life after college uh, to this army career. So there was a there was a little bit of angst, I guess you could call it, in my family when I when I turned that down. Um, mm-hmm. But overall, they were accepting. They understood that that was not my. Uh, my direction that I wanted to do. And, you know, they, they sort of pushed me towards the graphic design major because I actually do have a graphic design major as well as a painting major. And it was something like eight more classes to get a painting major on top of a graphic design major. And like six of them were painting, mm-hmm. it was like painting two through eight or something like that. So I was like, I'm gonna do this. And they were like, All right, okay, sure. So as long as I was sort of moving in that direction, but I'm glad I got the graphic design major. There's a, there's a lot of things that I do that I would not be able to do in my paintings if I didn't have that knowledge. But no, when I learned what graphic design was, I thought it was, I was more interested in maybe drawing armor sets for World of Warcraft. Like I wanted to work on like a video game. Like I wanted to do some art for video games, but much of the, the department was, you know, learning about typography and and as you said, sort of wrapping of products and stuff, which did not get me excited in the way that fine art.
1: And so that was like a, where you started from in terms of college, in terms of like pursuing paint, like both essentially. Correct.
0: I knew I wanted to do something with art. I didn't really know what that was. Uh, I had taken a couple drawing classes, uh, like a 2D design class. And my parents sort of encouraged me to go in a more marketable art degree.
1: And I'm assuming, too, that there was a little bit of influence, certainly, relative to what you could do. And I'm sure just like any other program, you're starting with bottles and moving towards other things. Um, I'm curious if that kind of graphic design or slash design slash abstraction stuff was something that was apparent, you know, especially in undergrad, because obviously still a big part of that now in terms of what I see in your work.
0: Sure, definitely. So, yeah, I think... Even in the early stages of my sort of college progression, I was still working very figuratively. Mm -hmm. I thought that was the best way to progress through my artwork because that was my skill set. And then my sophomore year of college, a guy named Tommy Fitzpatrick, who is a hard-edge abstractionist painter, became the head of the painting department. And they had a show of his work at the student gallery in the front of the, the building and I had never seen paintings like that. They were they were amazing. They blew me away. And that's really why I started painting in the way that I'm painting. And actually, in grad school, I actually applied to the University of Houston because there's a, the head of the department there uh, named Aaron Perizet. He's also a hard-edge abstractionist. And his work was, <laughs> dare I say it, even cleaner than Tommy's work. And <laughs> that just got me so excited to see people that were doing what I considered as good art or the art that I wanted to make being, you know, wildly successful with it.
1: Well, it's interesting too, because I'm immediately thinking of all the people that I know that talk like that, but it's like about representational painters. Sure. Right. So like, and and again, for somebody that myself, I mean, I kind of did a lot of abstraction in undergraduate and I would, you know, say that there's certain aspects of it that still relate obviously now, but like, I don't know that I can certainly appeal to that idea, you know, especially being around people that are so strong in a certain skill set or way of working.
0: Yeah, they've been doing it for so long that they just they're so masterful at what they do. Yeah, that's something to look up to for sure.
1: And so was there a lot of like color theory and, you know, exploration of uh, abstraction towards the end of that experience then as, as this new person came in and yeah. shook things up?
0: Yeah, so there so there definitely was. You know, as far as the curriculum changing, sort of the, the staggered classes that I had at the early stages of undergraduate degree became much more focused and sort of individualized. When uh, when Tommy took over, which was which was great. So
1: you kind of described figurative work before that. What what did it look like? I guess when you had your your capstone or your thesis or
0: sure, like in my undergraduate degree, yeah, yeah. I yeah my undergraduate degree for my painting, it was all hard edge abstraction. Okay, yeah, every single one. But at the same time, the same semester, I actually graduated with the graphic design major, um, and much of the classes that I took, you sort of had to take these set 10 classes to get the major. But then you could also take, you had to take like six electives in that focus. And I, I think five of the six that I took were some sort of uh, illustration or graphic illustration. Or mm-hmm. So I had a very strong portfolio of, of graphic drawings that were more figurative, um, that I could still use that skill set. But I don't know, I think a lot of those were, I sort of went towards the kind of dark Subject matter, kind of things that were a little bit more disturbing or kind of a little bit unnerving seemed like an easy way to to get a reaction. It was you got the reaction that you wanted to get very easily um, and i could i don 't know for whatever reason I was sort of attracted to that subject matter well
1: and is that something then you know relative to your schooling like where the idea of like going to study and learn how to be more nuanced I guess about it or try to figure out really what you're about is because I'm especially like I think you know I hear hard edge abstraction I'm like man like where's the way in for that because I think back to like when I was making paintings and having like such a hard time because I had all these concerns outside in the world that I would try to talk about I'm sure you had experiences where these these things that don't line up with the formal things that you're interested in
0: oh yeah definitely yeah you know I mean it's an interesting question I think it kind of comes down to just having those professors in my life to Mm -hmm. see the people that were making work that really interested me. And I saw a direct connection to the digital. That was kind of at the same time. I was learning all these programs. I was learning the difference between a PDF file based off vectors um, and then a pixel-based format. And one is more for, you know, more fluid painting. The other one is much more hard edge and doesn't pixelate when it gets larger. And all those kind of things were as I was learning them simultaneously to all these color theory and kind of um, compositional ideas, yeah, I think it definitely sort of pushed me in that direction, having those professors, but then also be, you know, studying the, the graphic design at the same time.
1: And was it like a straight shot then to, to graduate school and, and continuing that, or was it any breaks or no, summer in Europe?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was a straight shot. Yeah, it was like an, an odd four-month where I moved everything out of San Marcos or sort of in the Austin area and moved all to Houston. Yeah.
1: Again, kind of thinking about it like in terms of geographic you know locations and things like that, I mean I'm, I'm sure that you had been you know to Houston previously, sure. I mean, yeah. w- was there a lot of difference in terms of just like the setup and the program and in terms of when you got there and
0: In, in the last few years, Austin has changed quite a bit. I would consider Austin a city. Uh, it is growing so quickly now. Mm-hmm. but when I moved to Houston from growing up in sort of a suburb of Austin most of my life. Houston is a city. Houston is a real city. A metropolitan, giant, mm-hmm. huge, huge city. So that was that was a big difference. The art market is very different in Houston as well. Mm-hmm. That might be because I was in graduate school and I was very interested in going to gallery openings and I was much more determined to kind of get my foot in the door in certain areas. There's a lot more money in Houston. There's a lot of oil money. There's a lot of people who want to buy expensive artworks for their oil mansions i feel like there's a there's a bigger market in houston that might not be true but i feel like definitely right now but austin like i said is changing rapidly austin is growing so quickly with things like uh, south by southwest it attracts so many people they now have a uh, f1 track in austin which is crazy it's, mm-hmm. like, it's like the only one in the united states don't quote me on that i'm not sure if that's true but <laughs> it's uh it's impressive it's growing so so quickly yeah yeah so differences i definitely saw um, maybe if you were in Austin now and went to Houston, you might not see as many differences, but from my sure. experience, yeah, it was, it was like going to the big city kind of.
1: And in terms of like your, your start in the program, um, you know, usually they, they throw lots of curveballs, you know, to start sure. and sure. trash all the stuff that you came oh, in with that you were so excited yeah, about.
0: Stuff. Well, then why did you <laughs> <I> mean, accept <laughs> me? Right. If it's <laughs> all trash. Right. <laughs> for, sure. yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, I mean, like, obviously then you have a lot more liberties to really kind of explore, like, content or thinking about, you know, what makes your abstractions kind of unique or what it's like, certainly in comparison to your experience that you're coming from. And also, again, it's not a lot of, you know, four months is maybe not a a giant break either. So, I mean, were you really, like, determined to, like, do every kind of crazy painting from the beginning or were you looking at artists taking all sorts of classes i'm assuming and sure, meeting all sorts right. of people that are Definitely. influencing that but what was that initial experience like i guess
0: yeah just trying to fit up to all of my contemporaries uh, mm-hmm. in the program and feeling uh, you know a little overwhelmed of you know there's all this talent around me and then looking at the professors and their cvs and their work and just how ready they are to give you information that you probably don't have i think my initial reaction in graduate school was to try and make The hardest paintings I could make. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to try and make the craft of the painting so difficult that anyone that looked at it would immediately say, wow, like that was, that's a difficult painting. I can't even wrap my mind. I I did paintings that took 200 hours, I did paintings that were. Took like 50 steps, like starting from start to finish. And if I messed one step up, it would mess the entire painting up. Like I I tried to get as analytical and as complicated as possible. That was my initial reaction to graduate school. I pretty quickly figured out that less is sometimes more. Mm -hmm. Complication doesn't necessarily mean better. More is not better. And in many ways, I wasn't really making very interesting paintings. I was just making complex, kind of weird challenges for myself. That was definitely my initial reaction to grad school, was sort of a, let's see how many things I can throw into one painting, how difficult, how complex I can make this one thing. And then as I progressed, as I said, I sort of shifted and simplified certain things, but... Interestingly enough, the craft, the sort of honing, the sort of getting everything ready, the painting, the steps, didn't really change too much from late undergraduate degree to the end of graduate school, mm-hmm. except the big thing I did change was what well, this is right here, the, the vinyl cutter, which I, I learned how to use in graduate school, and I sort of use it in a way that most people would not use it. It's basically used for signage. Like if you go to a gallery opening, there's and it has your name on the wall and it's a nice cut, perfectly nice sticker. Mm-hmm. That's all from a plotter. That's all from this sort of vinyl cutter. Uh, I'm actually using that vinyl cutter to block certain areas, like on this uh, one right here in the center. You know, if I came in there with tape and tried to do that with an Exacto, I would have killed myself. But sure, um, I made two stickers, very complicated stickers, laid them, and then used them as a mask. So yeah, the vinyl cutter was was a big a big shift in complexity without having to spend 100 hours on on a painting
1: sure well and again to kind of think about that I'm, I'm sure a lot of it still relates but like i was pointing out earlier you got all of your tape rolls still too so there's some more traditional <laughs> ways sure. of working through it yeah, as well
0: yeah i mean this tape ball is about 15 pounds so that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty impressive tape ball. and i started that at the very beginning of grad school so that's a Almost a 10-year-old tape ball.
1: And you think about all the things that people have to store that are artworks, and then you've got this tape ball that exactly. you're carrying around. So exactly, yep. Maybe we'll have to share an image of this. <laughs>
0: sure, yeah, yeah. I have this idea, I don't know, maybe some retrospective in 50 years or something, when this thing is as big as I am, to, uh, to cut into it, mm-hmm. to cut like a, like a subsection out of it and like kind of see how many, how many layers are actually in there because it's all tape.
1: Like an excavation thing right. for the tree with the yeah, circles Yeah, yeah, exactly. And all we that. can see the yeah the
0: rings,
2: <laughs> right? Sure.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm curious. You know, you, you kind of talked about it growing content and then changing directions. You talked about things being very complicated and then wanting to kind of simplify for their impactfulness. I'm curious, especially as someone that you know likes that kind of painting. Was there any particular artist that you kind of really looked at as like doing something that you wish that you could do with your paintings that, you know, you get the technical side down, sure. but then it's like, what are they saying or doing or right. how are they it, doing it better? Or, or what are they, do? you know, I yeah. mean, again, cause I mean, your work is so formal too. I mean, I know that that's something that might formal qualities are maybe not looked at all the time as being a positive thing, but of course not. Right. Certainly that could be something that you might explore forever and oh, focus yeah. on not solely for that I think, reason.
0: I think in this level of abstraction, the formal qualities become maybe more important than what is actually being painted in some ways, you know, the movement, the color, the, the balance. Uh, those are always consistent things that I'm thinking about um, when building composition. But yeah, I mean, like a hero of mine that I discovered in grad school that basically took me on a journey for a couple years was Saul LeWitt. Mm-hmm. Very interested in uh, sort of systematic ways of creation. And that was very interesting to me. I'm also intrigued with mathematics it's interesting because there's so many different languages but there's one math math is based off of it's not based off any sort of cultural thing like language it's based off a a set of observations and it's almost an infallible set of observations but it's it's interestingly enough there's still mathematical observations that are still made there's still brilliant mathematicians that are finding new things in this sort of set that already exists so that really intrigued me. I did a, a couple pie paintings, where I did a couple language paintings, where I created my own alphabet.
1: So, like systems as a way into thinking about how your like visual ideas will be resolved.
0: Sure, right, yeah. Like, I mean, even like uh, Mondrian, like he was, I think, the the godfather of abstraction. If you want to think about sort of the Bauhaus movement and all of his additions to, I think, art history, trying to abstract the most formal. Uh, basic qualities, sort of right-angled primary colors. He was trying to create kind of like a language. He he really was interested in anyone in the world could come up to my painting and get the same kind of reaction to it. There'd be no cultural manifestation within the painting. There'd be no sort of connection to that, depending on if you were a white male from Europe or if you were from somewhere totally different. You know, it's it's just... A, it is what it is. It's just colors on a on a canvas. And that really interested me, too, the idea of trying to create something or try to create an observation of something, like a system, that anybody could sort of connect with in a way with no sort of cultural sort of biases, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know. I don't know if I ever really achieved that. I think it's a very <laughs> a very difficult thing to even sort of wrap your head around sometimes. But But yeah, I think that was constantly in my mind as well, to make them less specific but still have those really strong formal qualities that we were talking about.
1: I'm curious, though, again, like, so to, to think about that in, in that tail end, again, you get your thesis exhibition, you're making, like, how many how many paintings? Like, how big are they? How are they kind of shifted in terms of that, you know, couple of years of studying there or three years or whatever it was?
0: Yeah, it was a three-year program. Man, I probably presented 12 paintings. Some of them were fairly large. Some of them were five feet by maybe four and a half feet. Mm-hmm. Um, that was sort of a 30 by 36 was, and 40 by 48, sort of standard sizes for me, uh, inches. Um, so like three feet tall or four feet tall by just about that amount. So that was sort of a standard size. But I do have a, if we want to upload a picture or two, I do have a pretty good picture of the, the thesis show. I had one kind of room to myself and then kind of a, a hallway. At the, univers- at the University of Houston, it's a thing called the, uh, the Blaffer Gallery, which I actually was a docent at during uh, during grad school. I gave guided tours for the uh, the shows that came. That was that's was how I made a little money in grad school. Oh, nice! Yeah, so I was pretty familiar with the with the layout. So I, I sort of claimed a little spot that I <laughs> sure. wanted, that I think would be uh, good for my work. So that all worked out. Yeah.
1: You graduate from this experience, and then how did you wind up up here again? I'm I'm assuming that you started getting jobs up here, or somebody did, or right?
0: right. So strangely enough, what happened, so I graduated, and actually at that thesis show, I was actually approached by a gallery, and actually was lucky enough to get gallery representation in Houston right after that show, and then a week later, Tommy at Texas State says, I have two painting classes I want to teach, or I need to be taught uh, this summer, do you want to come teach? So like, literally, weeks after I graduated, I'm moving kind of everything two directions, because my fiance, or I guess it was just my girlfriend at the time, not quite my fiance, which my wife now, got into her doctoral program at Roosevelt University in Chicago. She's moving, so I'm going to be moving, but I sort of had to move certain things in certain areas. I had to move like the majority of my stuff in a moving truck to Chicago, and then I was taking like the bare minimums to San Marcos to teach for two months. And then I sold my car and then I flew up. It was a, it was an interesting couple months, uh, right after grad school. But yeah, moving to Chicago or, uh, you know, Naperville, the Chicago area was a big change. Yeah. I and mean, I didn't really have any jobs waiting. I actually ha- had to turn down a job at Texas state. They said, keep teaching. And I said, I can't. So yeah, that was, that was a, a tough couple of years for sure. Before I sort of got into the, uh, into what I wanted to be doing.
1: To think about the actual process now in terms of where you're at. So like when you're starting a painting, you know, what are you typically starting out something uh, in like a design aspect then on the computer?
0: Yeah. Oh, well, sometimes.
1: Sketches? I mean, Usually like...
0: sketches. Usually sketches are first. Yeah. Usually I get an idea just in a sketchbook. And then if I really like the idea, sometimes I'll sketch it two or three more times to make sure I really like it or if I want to change minor things. And then depending on how I'm progressing through the painting or how I plan to kind of tackle the painting – I'll either just basically draw with tape, which in certain ones like this one right here and this one right here is basically just making measurements um, and yeah, drawing with different size tape. But if it's very complicated, like something like that right in there, where there's no way I could do that with tape, I start planning on the, on the computer um, using a, a vector-based program, Illustrator, Adobe sure. Illustrator. And then, yeah, I can cut it directly on the vinyl cutter there.
1: And in terms of, like, drawing and and kind of designing, planning, I mean, is it something then where you, like, see a shape that you're kind of looking to kind of play around with or you know one element of it and then it's like a reaction, all those other things? It
0: kind of depends on the, the type of painting I make or I'm making because the process can be very similar, but I think that the subject matter for me personally is quite different and that can change how I sort of progress a painting. Like this optical one right here. Sometimes I'm very interested in just making very dense optical movements that the viewer can kind of get lost in and there's really no subject matter. It's kind of just color, line, and movement. Other ones I'm more interested, and this is sort of a fairly new idea, where I'm attempting to, maybe I'll use this word, quite right? uh, Anthropomorphize. I think that's the word. Anthropomorphize, something like that. Make look like a human, make it look like a living thing. Um, this guy right here is sort of just... have this idea of trying to take geometric shapes and give them the illusion of sort of being alive. Mm -hmm. Anthropomorphize? Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, yeah, sort of give them like weird sort of human characteristics, very just sort of abstract geometric shape. And then give them a a minor cast shadow to actually put sort of a figure in a perceivable background um, as simply as I can. Yeah, but that would be more of a, you know, obviously sort of a complicated kind of visual thing. Um, this one right here is obviously more complicated visual, but then I have sort of more clean breaks within it, so it's not just overwhelming visuals
1: well, it's interesting because again that idea of like figure ground relationship will kind of come come out and certainly right. this one that kind of starts to look like almost like a brain yeah. versus like a space that you can get lost in right right it sounds silly, but as an outsider, I mean, I'm like thinking like, oh, that must be just enough then to kind of be like, this is a formal guy, then this is a you know space world gale i don't sorry right
0: right no no for sure yeah and you know making those decisions usually fairly early in the process really delegates how i think about the painting like the one on the end i know as a as a podcast they don't get to see them we'll take some photos you can sort of reference them it started out as not being a figure-ground relation i was just going to do sort of that pixelation in the center all the way through i was going to just build really dense movement of color and then once I filled up that center area, I kind of liked it as an object. So I just threw a fairly simplistic background on it, and then I had sort of this weird idea of putting a loading symbol at the bottom right of the uh, the blue one there. So it, sometimes they'll change. Sometimes I think I know what the painting's going to ha- uh, gonna be, and then halfway through it, it does change. So that's it's good to still have a little bit of that, that looseness.
1: So there's still like a certain amount of improvisation.
0: Sometimes, yeah, yeah, and sometimes I think that is chalked up to bad planning. I wish there was more. I wish I wish I could loosen up a little bit and I didn't have to be as analytical about my paintings.
1: Well, and, you know, we talked a little about this idea of maybe them having, like, different feels, you know, something that's more like a, a figure, something that's more like a space or a design. I mean, I'm assuming that also plays in terms of color, in terms of how you plan things out and... I want to have like the brightest lime green looking design thing on here. Sure. What's going to go good with that visually? I right. Mean,
0: yeah. What's going to balance that, that right. really obnoxious color out. Right. And actually my good friend, our neighbor, he, uh, he told me about this color called acid green, mm-hmm. which is a, a Porsche color. Mm-hmm. It's, it's only them. They do it standard <laughs> in their, you know, hundred thousand dollar cars, maybe more. I have no idea, but that was the idea. I wanted to, I, I tried to color match that as closely as possible get that acid green, and then once I had that, I made that decision and then based the secondary color off of that. I did almost that whole entire form to completion before I even decided what the uh, the background was going to be on that.
1: And I, I'm assuming too at this point, and obviously when people kind of see your work, there's all this like kind of figuring out how, you know, this was worked out.
0: Process oriented, Yeah.
1: Yeah, but I'm I'm assuming then that you figured out a way to allow like a certain amount of editing to kind of take place because when I look at your work, I'm like, oh, you like screw up one li-. like you kind of described before earlier like in in I believe graduate school or you know screwing up a area and then kind of being like oh this is done. I mean, are they still pretty editable as you're working through it? If you're like oh this color isn't working, I want to change this this violet.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, as far as changing color, it's very easy. As far as changing form and where things are, uh, it's much more difficult depending on how far in the process I am because there is a, a visceral depth that the paint creates. I try to paint thin layers, but I try to paint three to five layers with every color that I'm doing so it's a perfect opacity. Mm-hmm. So it develops a thickness. Um, so if I get to a certain point like that and then I pull and I decide that's not what I want, there's only certain things that I can do within the parameters of the painting without completely doing what I call nuking the painting where I bring gesso back in and I completely sand and i I completely take an area out, but that that's a that's a process that's <laughs>
1: a lot of tears I'm sure <laughs> yeah
0: yeah, I mean sometimes it has to be done and it has been done. sometimes I've actually just taken canvases off stretchers and just restretched. There's certain parameters that are definitely put up on me in this in this process that I can't just change anything I want at any point. Of the process
1: primarily at this point and still work just mostly on canvases wrapped over panels then
0: I do yeah I actually got some uh, some watercolor paper pretty recently that I'm going to start trying to do some uh, some smaller works on paper mm-hmm. just because they're cheaper they're smaller I think that they could be more readily available um, to some clientele I just want to see how I've you know I do a lot of Instagram surfing um, and I've seen a lot of acrylic on watercolor and I've talked to a couple artists about it so I think I have the the right stuff to give it a go. But yeah, I I am a very sort of traditional sort of, once again, I think a lot of the reasons that I was interested in systems is because I am such a systemized creator. I have a very specific way of things that I do. And if, it's, if this step does not work perfectly, the next step is not going to work perfectly. And I think a lot of that is kind of my own sort of holdups on what I perceive as me being successful in making a, a painting. But yeah, I think that's just sort of I think every artist kind of has certain things that uh, certain holdups that if it's not this way, then it's incorrect, which is maybe not the, the best way of creating. But it's sort of inevitable, I think.
1: Well, there's, there's kind of like a catch 22, you know, being a teacher, too, where you're like, oh, you know, stop using your eraser so much, you right. know. Right. You and have then... certain
0: things that you want to tell, <laughs> like, do better than I do. Like, I use my eraser way too much, but you shouldn't. right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Right.
1: There's always those things that eventually become yours, I guess, you know, these habits. Sure.
0: They just get ingrained after the the years and years of creating. Yeah.
1: Well, and and so to think about these, like, especially, like, outside of the context, too, just kind of seeing them in your studio, I mean, if you're going to be working for a show, I mean, is it something that's thematic, or is it something that you're very literally collecting the ones that feel like they go together, or will you plan out, like, an entire show, or...
0: Yeah, I mean, if I'm going to have a solo show, which I've only had a few... I do want to try and curate as much as possible. If I have an idea for maybe like a centerpiece, like the the grandest painting, the biggest favorite one that I have, um, maybe I'll try and plan sort of around that or try and see what I thought worked well in that one and try and do some smaller ones to kind of fit in the series. Mm-hmm. Like one of the one of the solo shows I had at the Zoya Tommy Gallery, you can call it a residency. It was called Five by Five. It was actually done at a restaurant in Chicago, and they gave you a $500 stipend. And then for the week, you came in and just painted at the, um, the restaurant mm-hmm. while people were eating, mm-hmm. which was an interesting experience. I met a couple of people, actually sold the paintings, but it all <laughs> kind of worked out. And the stipend was kind of cool. But I actually have been buying panels from a friend that I went to undergraduate with since undergraduate degree. Um, so I had him make me 10 random shapes, I said, I don't even want to know what they are. I just want 10 random shapes. And then my first challenge was to try and stretch canvas over them, which was quite difficult with different angles and uh, curves and things like that. Actually, stretching over a circle is not easy. You have to sort of delegate corners, um, even though there's no corners on the shape. And then I sort of just based the paintings off of the shape. I didn't put any sort of preconceived ideas into it I just let the the shape tell me what the painting was so that series was you know taking up maybe half of the show but all of those were kind of in the same vein I I had I did them all in one week very sort of rigorous week but I still did them and so yeah so definitely they were curated to try and be all kind of one thing one idea one form of creation but then I sort of had I don't know some semi-conflicting paintings on the other sort of side of the show. But yeah, I think I'm always kind of thinking of them. How does this painting relate to the next? And how does this painting change the next? Or what did I do on this painting that I'm not as happy with, that I won't do on the next painting? Like, how can I make the next one better?
1: You know, as somebody that has such an interesting color, um, myself, I mean, I'm always kind of curious where people sure. will will pick and choose from, you right? Because there's ones where you start almost associating it with like a uh, a, a candy that escapes my name for this one
0: sure yeah but i, mean, I so made like a that painting that? called chicklets in the in grad school <laughs> yeah
1: but but i mean is it sometimes where you just like i, I had this wild color is it like very systematically designed first or i, I say that because for me like i like i was describing you earlier you know i just had a weird day where i was making bad decisions and i gotta right. go back through and just pump up the the value of of, of colors because they're so dark right you can't you right. can't see them, so
0: yeah you know a lot of times i'll just mix a color and then just kind of go from there and just see what the painting kind of manifests into many other times there's a hundred different versions in illustrator where i'm looking at colors and i'm color matching and i'm making sure this is exactly what i want um, but i've tried to veer away from that i've tried to have more freedom in the in the palette stage in the mixing of paints, if I want that darker great, if I want that lighter great, and sometimes just the digital doesn't doesn't translate as well to the to the analog I guess you could call it uh, to the real world, so yeah, I mean sometimes I have like a very basic idea like this one I knew I wanted to use that uh, that acid green, um, but i wasn't sure if I was going to accent it with a a compliment or a um or something different, but something that would balance it out. And when I didn't actually use red on this one, I went with that magenta, uh, I decided I wanted to make another one with the red to see how the, the color relation would work. I did shift the colors a bit. Um, like on something like this, I'm very interested in in local color, so the idea of that the, you know, the red would have some green and the green would have some red to make the the color palette work better. But I don't know, for whatever reason, something like this with more optics and more um, sort of a jolting um, nature. I'm less interested in things like that. I want them to kind of be separate. I don't really need them to feel like they're within the same world.
1: And again, it seems like then sometimes they're informed by something, and then sometimes they're informed by them themselves. Or sure. like the yeah, more arbitrary, and... right? Yeah, where
0: sure. yeah. Um, sometimes it's very difficult for me to do. But sometimes when I turn my brain off, when I stop thinking so much, I make better paintings. When I stop putting so much value into every decision I make and I just sort of let the the process kind of take over sometimes I make much better much more successful paintings
1: and is is there anything that like I don't know allows you to kind of get into that that zone where you're seeing things more clearly some people just have some very weird processes or, you know, they're going to turn everything around or turn it upside down or, right. you know, or they need to work in silence or, uh, like, is there anything that allows you to kind of access that or pull yeah. from?
0: Yeah, um, seclusion helps um, me trying to just kind of get into my own headspace. Good music can definitely help put me in a in a good spot as well. I don't know. I think... I use the term waxing and waning earlier. I think that's kind of how my, probably every artist's creative process kind of comes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes like some weeks I'm just killing it. Some, some weeks I'm, I'm in the studio for three or four hours a day, every day I'm working on multiple paintings. They're all working. They're progressing nicely. And then sometimes I'll go like a month without really doing anything. Kind of just like pitter pattering and kind of cleaning stuff up and, doing minor things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think everybody kind of goes through that sort of internal struggle, uh, that you want to get in the studio every day and you want to do work and you want to make successful work. But yeah, sometimes just life gets in the way, I suppose. Sure. Sure. And my own kind of, I don't know what the word would be, laziness, probably my own, just not being able to get in here and just buckle up. You know, Chuck Close said, uh, inspiration is for amateurs he's like the rest of us are just getting in there and getting working like inspiration is such like this i think a lot of people have this sort of romantic idea about art making that you should you know you go into the studio and you have this existential connection with your painting and um you're i don't know you're i don't have that anymore i don't have that sort of fairy tale connection to my paintings anymore sometimes i'll I'll be very Happy with how how a painting turns out, or I'll be very satisfied with the color relation or things like that. But getting in the studio and doing work is is just that. It's it's work. It's it's very critical thinking. It takes a lot out of me, Um, and sometimes I just I don't know. I just don't have it in me.
1: Well, and I'm I'm curious too because you know we've described a little bit about how that editing process will work digitally. Is that something then where you might have like again? I noticed a stack of like smaller panels. Sure, I mean, right. do you have like a bunch of like small things that you're also just kind of like I don't give it, a- yes. don't care at all what's going on with this one. I'm just going to dump this on there and then go to down with tape and
0: for sure, yeah. And those are the ones that uh, you're not seeing today. <laughs> those okay. are yeah, those, those are all hidden. Okay, yeah, those are the the <laughs> uh, yeah the the blackmail paintings. Those are the ones where yeah, and well, sometimes those work. Sometimes they become more kind of like just I, don't know, I can't compare. Them to jackson pollock's but they become kind of a mess they become a little bit overworked um sometimes that i, c- I just kind of keep building them, keep building them and it, they're more um kind of tests for other things almost like sometimes i'll do something really nice in like that square inch and i'll be like oh i'm gonna make a whole painting out of that so sometimes they're they're better just kind of jumping off points than actually finished pieces
1: well and i'm asking too especially just because you know like anytime you you know, start getting to a place where like, you know, you're running out of room or I don't know, like, like it's always such a hard thing to kind of figure out where you want to go
0: as, you, as, as you're working. Yeah. Sure. And you yep. certainly
1: don't want to, you know, I'm sure from like an outside perspective, that's something that I always think about is like, oh, somebody's probably like, oh, this is the exact same thing that Dave's doing or you right. know, whatever else. So it's kind of like, how do you keep finding some, some new kind of ground? So it's interesting to think about it like that. Cause then it sounds like, then you've got you know, multiple outlets to kind of be able to do that, whether it be drawing or designing stuff, editing stuff, or just, you know, working on a new painting that's going to be burned.
0: Right, (laughs) right, (laughs) right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you just never know how things are going to turn out for sure. I've also started with that vinyl cutter. Um, One of the things you can actually do is make uh, T-shirts. And I actually have a heat press over there that basically take a very well-cut sticker and you put a lot of pressure and a lot of heat on a T-shirt and you get a a nice sort of quality. I actually have a couple... Right over there. Um, but I've actually sold a couple of those. I did pretty well at a, a couple art fairs. Um, people seem to like T-shirts there, and one's kind of funny. It's sort of like the the Supreme logo, and then it just has ish after it. So it's like I'm not quite Supreme, but sure. I feel like I I like the idea of trying to put humor into my work, but I never find ways of really doing it in my paintings. Sometimes I'll think things are I will think things are semi humorous on the uh, the color palette or how I've painted certain things. But I don't think they sort of translate sometimes. Like, to me, that's kind of a funny painting. It's kind of a goofy painting. It's got, like, these bold kind of bizarre colors. I think that the the purple in the back doesn't have enough value in it. I think it's just a little bit light. It's kind of a, just a goofy composition to me. But I don't think that would translate uh, to most people.
1: Well, and I'm curious then, too, now that you bring it up, I mean, do you have, you know— fun titles or are they like un- yeah you know, untitled yeah titled 712 or yeah you know, i mean I, I try
0: not to put too much thought into my titles that's one thing i try to be as intuitive as, as possible so usually at the end of a painting i'll kind of look at it and whatever comes to mind is kind of the title now i don't put i try not to put too much weight on that there's yeah i think there's a lot of artists that w- that do i think that the the title becomes a lot of the piece but no i think My titles are semi-arbitrary or sometimes like a little bit of a joke.
1: Well, and you kind of described earlier about kind of wanting to have maybe like a little bit of openness, I I want to say, in terms of like the way somebody receives it so that when they go up that, you know, if they want to just have this pure formal thing or if they start thinking about Alice in Wonderland or whatever, you know, whatever. It's all good. Oh, it's a doorway, you know, or There's no
0: preconceived kind of – avenue that someone should connect with the work yeah i think for many pieces that's that's absolutely true i'm
1: seeing this shirt you know that obviously has i don't know a little bit of correlation too in terms of the painting Um, definitely is i mean is that something like it sounds silly i'm always curious like if there's just this other thing that somebody wouldn't know you know like that you get excited about sure but i think that totally relates because i mean there's just this nice range of um, you know violets and turquoise and, and really
0: bold colors yeah. on a sort of neutral background yeah no I think in a weird way and it's only kind of recently I don't think I was actually really interested in fashion at all growing up but I think if a shirt kind of makes me smile or kind of makes me laugh I'm more attracted to things that are little bit more humorous mm-hmm. like i have uh even with tattoos i think i used to be very serious about the tattoos that i wanted to get i think they're going to be my body forever it's going to be this like, commitment and i have like my family crest on my body i have like the all these very uh, deep family things and then my most recent tattoos are <laughs> are photorealistic drawings of my dogs on my <laughs> on my legs and it's like everybody that looks at them laughs immediately <laughs> and i think that's way better it's like that's that's the avenue that i want to be in like i think that's that's sort of lighthearted, but still well done it would be it would be a great place to to be
1: well, and so I guess in in terms of thinking about your work, especially, like is there uh, you know anything like coming up that you're working towards, or you know some kind of you know leave us with so, some some kind of sure big sure. mystical quest that you're going to be on I right guess. right I don't where know. this
0: goes yeah, I mean I stretched some some bigger canvases over there. I've got some ideas for uh for a new series, those bigger ones. I also have some work at at a place called Ice House Gallery in Evanston, just outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I've got a a four-foot-tall painting there. It's called a Stussy S. I had to do like a minute of research on this. It's the S that everybody drew in elementary school, the three lines, the three lines. And I did it on top of a piece of notebook paper or sort of this trompe l'oeil kind of fooling of the eye, trying to look kind of similar to this, where you have like an object and a background. But I had these ideas of trying to plan a show around like my fifth grade doodling. I drew a lot of stick figure fights and I drew a lot of S's and I did, you know, I was just a totally inattentive kid. I was not listening ever uh, in elementary school. It took me a, a lot of work to be able to uh, do well in school. And I think that was a lot because I just got distracted from things. But yeah, I got a, I've got got a, a couple ideas going on uh, right now, as well as with the Nicole Longnecker Gallery They actually, we were talking about doing a show sometime this year. They actually just move locations to I think what's going to be a a better location. So hopefully something I don't know, maybe mid twenty twenty something like that. We've we've been in the talks of uh, of doing something there. So so that would be good, yeah. But yeah, so I mean it's interesting to still have kind of a connection with Texas because I still in many ways feel that Texas is my home. But then to you know be moving into new gallery avenues up here in the Chicago area is uh, is exciting as well. It's a it's a different different place to to show and you meet different people that are making a lot of you know unique different types of work. So I think it's it's good to sort of broaden my horizons.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to hear you talk a little about the uh, Stussy Stussy. X.
0: Yeah, apparent so. or S. Excuse me. Yeah, Stussy S. Apparently, I posted it on Instagram and I got a couple people DMing me telling me like the history because I sort of put a little tagline like what is this and apparently it was sort of skater and uh, and stoner culture in the uh, <laughs> late 60s, early 70s in California and it was just uh, like a very simple graffiti mark that, sure. uh, that started there and then somehow it manifested into every elementary school in the United States. Right. So. Well,
2: no,
1: I mean, again, I think I've talked to people about this, I'm sure, on a podcast before yeah. but then I'm also wondering if they invented like Trapper keepers and <laughs> folder culture for like a period of time because there's exactly yeah with you the know. stickers and sure, the yeah sure. yeah well it's weird too because there's like that there's a little bit of that to me in terms yeah. of like so when you talk about playfulness I mean it's almost like that kind of like like a certain time period or Part of like a, I don't know, like an experience or history that's kind of nuanced in a weird way that kind of adds this like universal quality to it makes it really interesting to me. I don't know. Yeah, like you start yeah, kind of. I a- like
0: that. Yeah, I'd like if that was uh, if that was coming across. You know, I'm, I'm also very intrigued by the uh, the pop art movement, uh, like a Roy Lichtenstein or uh, Nicholas Kraschnik is a fantastic hard edge abstractionist from the same time, sort of a pop abstractionist. But I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I think that a lot of people try and do that with art. I think they try and make something that no one has ever made before. And that's a, it's a noble uh, endeavor. But I think you'll find that someone has probably done it and someone has probably done it better than you have. So I think to put yourself in that sort of space, almost self-defeating.
1: Well, and, and there's something, too, that like um, just come into realizations as you get older. We've talked about already, you know, how much time we have in terms of being in the studio and, and, and other responsibilities and You know, sometimes it might just be that you really like to get, you know, super nerded up on the computer and design something that's insane. And how am I going to paint this? And it's going to be so cool when somebody sees it and sees that crazy pop of color. And they're like, whoa, you know, like, how did you do that?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. You know, I heard this statistic uh, in grad school. The average amount of time that someone spends with a painting, like in a museum or in a gallery setting. What do you think?
1: Oh, I'm going to guess three seconds.
0: Yeah, I think it was four seconds. Yeah, I think that was the actual time. So that's, that was a great guess. When I heard that, I was flabbergasted. I had no—I mean, because when I sit with a painting, when I sit with a painting, I could sit with a painting for half an hour and right. still be getting stuff from it. So when I heard that, and that was early in grad school, I think that sort of pushed the complexity of those paintings as well. Mm-hmm. I had this goal like— I want people to look at my paintings for ten seconds. Like that's right, that's right. my goal. Like make it so complex that you can't even look at it all in three seconds. That there's so much going but I think sometimes people get turned off by complexity too. It's just like it's too much to look at. I don't even want to look at it anymore. They keep moving.
1: And now with Instagram you just need something that's really long and that's narrow right. so that you have to keep scrolling. That's to right. Get through that's that right. Post, you get a couple so. full scrolls on it
0: <laughs> so you can and then double tap it for the like. Yeah, right, right on. Yeah. Which is, yeah, I think I've talked a lot about that with my classes too, the um, the ever readiness and the availability of being able to see artwork, you know, with, if you just get in one sort of search on Insta, you can just keep scrolling and you can see hundreds, not thousands of paintings, but I think we're losing a lot of the connection that we have with the paintings. Sure. This sort of visceral quality of actually walking up to a painting and seeing, you know, how it's made and what this thing is. Um, That's always my first question when I look at a piece of work, inevitably, is how was this thing made? If I can't figure out within the first few seconds of how the artist made this thing, I'm immediately more intrigued Mm -hmm. by what I'm looking at, and I want to investigate it further. So I think there's always been a little bit of that in me, by trying to create paintings where people maybe ask, like, wow, how how did he do that?
1: Well, so before we wrap up, where where can people check out your work? We won't give out your address, but, you know.
0: Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, the best place would be uh, my website. Uh, it's just my name, uh, com. I am on Instagram as well, so that's uh, maybe a more, I don't know, sort of lowbrow way of, of looking at it if you just want to get on your phone and do that. But, yeah, the the website's, I don't know, I try and make it as clean and professional as possible, and then the Instagram is a little bit less Uh, less formal so so and that's also just sort of at at eric Ocrasa.
1: all right well again thanks for inviting me over it's been fun looking at your work which is awesome so thanks for coming this was a lot of fun thanks once again to eric for joining me you can check out his work at eric com. there's plenty of work there and if you're in the chicagoland area be sure and check out his work that's on view at Icehouse House Gallery in Evanston. Be sure and follow him on Instagram at Eric O'Crasse. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to studiobreak.com. Again, we've got plenty of archived episodes for you to listen to while you're working away in the studio. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork as well as links to their website so you can find out more information there. You can listen right there in the default player or just click that iTunes hyperlink and you'll be transported. You can subscribe there and never miss an episode. Of course, if you do like the podcast, we'd love it if you helped spread the word, left us some comments and feedback there or anywhere, really. You can also follow along on our social media, so be sure and check it out. Like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break leave some comments, and say hello. As always, I'd like to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his work at skylermail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, you can check out David Linaway. And if you're in the central Illinois area or just want to make a road trip, I have a two-person exhibition opening July 19th at Heartbreaker Gallery in Peoria, Illinois. I do have to say I'm super pumped to be showing some new paintings that I'm very excited about. The show runs from 6 to 8 p.m., and the show is entitled Peripheries, and it's a two-person show with Shona McDonald, who we had on back in the fall of 2018. So if you're in the area, be sure and check it out once again. it's at Heartbreaker in Peoria from 6 to 8. And, of course, you can find information on the Instagram page. And, of course, if you want to see more of what I'm up to, be sure and follow me at David Linaway on Twitter and Instagram. And that wraps this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed listening and checking it out. I hope that your studio is productive and full, and we'll talk to you real soon.